Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this evening? I'm wonderful, sir. How are you doing today? Not doing too badly. Uh, happy holidays for anyone who celebrates it. Uh, if this episode's a bit late uh, coming out, it's only because we've spent the last hour, uh, tr- instead of prepping, actually talking about the end of uh, season two of The Mandalorian. So uh, <laughs> don't you remember? It was, wasn't it so great when... By the time this is released, I'm assuming everyone who has wanted to see it has probably seen it, but we're not going to spoil it anyway. We're not that type of podcast. No, no, especially since theoretically that's not a movie, so... Uh, that would seem extra that would seem extra cruel to to do it that way. Our theme for today's episode uh, are the British filmmaking pair Powell and Pressburger. Now, Chris, until you had suggested that name, I don't believe I had heard those uh, names before. So why don't you give us a quick intro? Yeah, so Powell and Pressburger, uh, for my money, one of the greatest creative teams in all of cinema history. Um, They are kind of widely acknowledged as the greatest British filmmakers of all time. Uh, They were a, a... Pair, kind of similar to the Coen brothers, uh, wrote, directed, produced a series of films under the banner of The Archers, which was their production company. And just in terms of their contribution to society, uh, their contribution to art, their contribution to to filmmaking, um, just masters of the form. And when I say form, you're like, well, Chris, what form are you talking about? I mean, literally anything. When you talk about color, especially technicolor, these guys use color like no one else. Some of the most amazing films of all time uh, that came out of Britain, things like uh, Black Narcissus, which just recently was uh, remade as a miniseries featuring a bunch of people I don't care about because their names are neither Powell nor Pressburger. Uh, More importantly, probably a film we're not going to talk about, but I heavily recommend anybody see The Red Shoes. Um, if you want to see Technicolor at the apex of its use, um, as shot by Jack Cardiff, one of the masters of the form, watch the red shoes, watch the last 25 minutes of the red shoes. If you don't want to watch anything else and see what it's like to see color put to its ultimate use, um, uh, pushed against visuals, pushed against music, pushed against rhythm. It, it's just incredible. These guys, um, for the period that they were really truly active in, kind of late 30s to early 50s, a little bit beyond that as well, um, what we're going to talk about is firmly ensconced in the 40s. They were products of their time. A lot of the movies that they did were very current uh, to what was going on in the early 40s. A little thing you may have heard of World War II, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, just a a small thing called the Second World War. Um, But a lot of what they were doing at that time finds uh, finds footing and finds foundation in a lot of what our greatest filmmakers kind of do now. So when you think about the things that kind of really stand out when we talk about filmmaking now, we, we talk about things like, oh, the incredible long take or the use of symbols or the use of color to denote certain things. I mean, a lot of that, if it doesn't find its its origin in Powell and Pressburger, um, Powell and Pressburger certainly made the most of those things. We're going to talk about some incredible long shots. Uh, we'll talk about some unbroken takes. We'll talk about color, uh, especially when we talk about uh, my contribution to the discussion t- 
today and, and how it works. There were, they were also masters of location. Um, when a lot of films, especially if you think about the Hollywood system in the 1940s, everything was, was very set and studio oriented. These guys were going out and just location after location, everything was as realistic as possible except when it wasn't. And when it wasn't, it was so not realistic and it was so impressionistic and um, gorgeous use of um, backdrops and studios and background paintings to evoke a, a sense of feeling, a sense of character, a sense of space, a, a sense of really foundationally what it was to be British, what the British character was at that time. Um, and if it sounds like I'm rambling, it's it's because I I, I can't speak highly enough. This is going to be a very um, emotional episode for me because Powell and Pressburger have made some of the greatest films of all time to 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 my eyes and my ears and my heart. Um, so it's really hard to kind of be critical on my perspective, which is why I'm going to rely on you, John, because I know you have very little exposure to Palin Pressburger. I think when we talked originally, we were setting this episode up, the only one you have seen you think was Black Narcissus, correct? Yes. Uh, my Black Narcissus story is that uh, when I go to my public library in a you know small Canadian uh, town that I live in, uh, they don't necessarily have a great selection. But every now and then, some random per someone will randomly donate a Criterion DVD. And so my policy is: if you see Criterion at the library, you borrow it immediately, regardless of what it is. And so under that circumstance, we borrowed Black Narcissus, and that's literally the only thing I remember about it. I know we watched it, but I and, and that's and like <laughs> there was a nun, there were mountains. That's yeah, all I vaguely I, the, remember. The poster, <laughs> I remember the poster for it. It looks cool. <laughs> So since you're coming as the newcomer and, and I'm the one who's kind of been around the block, so to speak, with regards to the, 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 the pair, um, why don't you, you talk about uh, what your pick was and, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. I know where I'm going and I know who's going with me. I know who I love, but the dear knows who I'll marry. Yeah, so my pick for uh, tonight's episode is 1945's I Know Where I'm Going, which is a, I'd, I'd call it a romantic comedy, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, this one stars Wendy Hiller and Roger Livesey as the two uh, the two leads of the movie. And my selection process for this was mostly boiled down to um, the... That when we were looking through the movies, and I and I watched a good chunk of them, there seemed to be a lot of war themed movies, which seems appropriate again, since a lot of the stuff is concentrated around the forties. And since your pick is specifically like, basically sort of the climax of that uh, type of environment, I thought I would pick something that was a little bit different. And this also forms a nice bridge for to our last episode on romantic comedies as well. So I thought this would be. Uh, a fun one to talk about. Um, I mean, you spent a good chunk of your intro talking about the use of Technicolor. And so we should say up front that this movie is in black and white. Um, yes. So that part of the discussion will be mostly served for your movie. However, um, you also talked about their use of location and how that set them apart from the Hollywood Studios system. And to me, the thing that is absolutely spellbinding about this movie is the fact that it is mostly shot in Scotland, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. So the very the, much a location based movie. Yeah. The the 
the like to sum up the plot incredibly briefly and we can talk about it more in detail later um wendy hiller uh is the she's basically the lead of this movie and she plays a character named joan webster who is a a young ambitious woman who uh always knows where she's going she's very self-assured and she's always pretty focused on uh her own life goals and that includes getting married to what is apparently one of the richest men in england uh and on her way to see him on a uh, on an island that he has uh, leased out for the time being. Uh, she gets the weather sort of prevents her from uh, connecting with him. And over the time that she's stuck in this uh, Scottish town runs into Tobermory. What? what? Tobermory. To- the town of Tobermory. Oh my goodness. I, you know, this is this is these a, this, towns are very hard yeah i was gonna say like <laughs> i don't have an excuse like if we're talking like you know japanese or non other non-english type of things like th- the names we can be forgiven for getting i don't have an excuse here but i'm gonna take it anyway like these names are not gonna be fun um but basically waylaid because of whether she runs into roger livesey and they spend time together and the the romance uh and the comedy sort of happens while she's waiting for the weather to clear up but the 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 locations where they're shooting um the the big storm sequence that sort of forms the the climax uh towards the end of the film it is like it is just absolutely like you could see that now in more recent movies and not blink an eye at it but when i think of older movies of this sort i do think of those hollywood studio movies and those backdrops of those backlot sets and this movie um along with a lot of their stuff that was what stood out to me was wow this is just a movie that's happening in a really cool place that you don't see a lot especially in old-timey movies in in black and white um i think that the 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 weather and the this the scenery that is that is obviously or to me anyway that is the obvious first takeaway at least what do you think yeah so one of the things i loved about this film and this was my first time watching it um i know where i'm going is one that i was not familiar with and immediately just the location the way that they use scotland the way that they use the towns uh, almost everything is shot on location and when it's a studio shot it's it's it still feels very much a part of what they're doing um this was a delightful film just to talk for a bit before we even get into the 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 plot proper because there's some interesting things at play here one of the things that the that um, Palin Pressburger do really well <clears throat> is the way that they knock out an ending and the way that they kind of tie everything together. And the ending of this is one that I definitely want to talk about. But before we do, let's talk about the very beginning. Just to knock <laughs> this movie already out, out of the park for me, the way that they do the opening credits. Thank you. For bringing this is up, is amazing. Way. So the movie is called "I Know Where I'm Going," and it, it introduces Joan when she's just a baby, and you know, even as a young woman, as a young girl, she knew where she was going. She always was, and it, this is also just a, um, this is just a a theme of almost everything Powell and Pressburger do. Just the British character, yeah, in in all of its infinite varieties. Um, this is an upstanding modern woman who knows what she wants, and she. She knows wants to how she wants to get it. She is going to marry rich, rich, 
Which Rich, again, I've already been one drinking, so you'll have to forgive me. She wants to marry Rich. She wants to be affluent. She wants to be wealthy. And she knows exactly how she's going to do it. And as they set that up through her childhood, um, the credits kind of appear within the film itself. So it's it's not just kind of scrolled over the film. It's on a chalkboard as she's doing lessons. It's on the side and back of a truck that kind of scrolls by as she's going to and from work uh, when she becomes a young lady. Um, it's just that level of inventiveness. That's Powell and Pressburger to a T. When you think of British films, you, you typically think of very stuffy and you think of, you know, stiff upper lip and this is what it's all, all about. And as much as the movies play into that, they also break away from it in these amazing visual ways. And just how the opening credits work are a small part of that, John. Uh, and I'm glad that you that was one of the things that you took from this movie as well, because it is very it's very playful and it's very modern in the way that it sets up that intro. You don't see a lot of movies doing that back in this was 1945, right? Yeah. The uh yeah, the 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 credit yeah, the, the credit sequence where like all of the credits appear as printed things that are actually on set. So like there's no overlaid text, it's all just on things that are being shot by the camera. Like that I mean, you can fake that kind of thing uh now with more ease than you used to be able to with effects, but like the and obviously they did it there, but like it requires just so much more like imagination and careful attention to craft that like like i think what when it comes to sort of the visual experience whether it's using the longer takes or the the composition of the shots or the locations all like the the whole visual experience watching any powell and pressburger movie it feels like they are just bursting at the seams with like exuberance and ideas and commitment to in ways that like even some even some like classic american uh hollywood movies at the time i i don't associate with as much um, yeah and and particularly british films right because i i mean again these are two british guys who were making films that were as much as they are about the british character are decidedly un-british in their approach there's nothing conservative about their films. There's almost something, and I want to talk about this as well. There's almost something um, strangely erotic and sensual about their films with just the way that they play characters and they play emotion and they they play with lo location. At, at least for me, one of the things that I want to talk about in the film is so um, – the, the bare bones of the film are exactly as you say, but it's Joan Webster who, who knows where she is going and she's on this prim and proper, I'm going to marry wealthy and be this kind of wealthy matron direction. As, as, as much as that's her thing, when she arrives in the town of Tobermory trying to get to the, um, the Isle of Killoran which is where her husband, who is the magnate of some chemical processing company, he's rented it for the duration and that's where she's going to go and, and get married. And she's stopped by, by the weather while she's stopped here. She is uh, staying with um, a woman named um, Katrina Potts. Yeah. And there is something about Katrina. And, and then once she meets Ka Ka Katrina, she also meets, um, 
Torquil, who we find out is the Laird of Kaloran, and we'll talk more about him in a moment because he's extremely important, and we're going to talk about him a lot with the other film as well. But um, there is a vibrance and fire to Katrina I found in the movie. She's exquisitely modern. She lives by herself. She's kind of the odd person out in the town. She has all these dogs. Um, she's her own woman. She hunts and kills her food to eat. And then when everyone is kind of together and, and, and Joan is staying there because she has no place else to go and she's waiting for the, the storm and the winds to, to ride out so she can get to Kaloran, she meets this gentleman, Torquil, who is on leave, also trying to get to Kaloran. You don't know why yet. You, you, you find out later who he is. Played wonderfully by Roger Livesey. And there's this quick moment where Roger meets Katrina Trina, who he knows, they've, they've known each other for a long time, and there's just this weird moment where he says hello to her, and they're almost like lovers. There's a full kiss on the mouth, there's like this weird moment where I was taken off guard like, oh, they must be together, but I know how this movie is supposed to go. It's going to be a love, like a love match between Livesey and, um, Livesey and uh, Wendy Hiller. So what the hell's happening here? Um... Hollywood would not do that at that time. I mean, there was, there's, there's this sensual, touchy nature to this movie that took me off guard in, and I have to say, the most wonderful of ways. And that kind of keeps going throughout this film, throughout the next film that that we're going to talk about. There are these touches that are so modern and so un-British from the most British of filmmakers. Um, it's an anachronism, but it's one that is wonderful and just leads to so many wonderful moments in both films. Yeah, and before we get to the the Wendy Hiller-Roger Livesey relationship that drives the plot, I do got to say Katrina is probably my favorite character i think for reasons that you kind of uh you kind of hint at like when you know the 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 leads have to be the leads and they have to be sort of who they are but when as soon as katrina shows up with her with her dogs and her gun or like we're gonna go you know skinning rabbits i was like who's this person i want to know more about her (laughs) exactly think about this this is one of the things that i was thinking about because we'll talk about wendy hiller a little bit more in my film as well because she does have like a a a weird tangent to the film that i'm going to talk about but imagine if pamela brown who who played katrina potts imagine if if she was joan webster yeah that to me all of a sudden becomes well, if I have a gripe with I know where I'm going is I like Wendy Hiller, um, especially as the film gets on. Um, she like the way that um, Wendy Hiller plays her really works. And we'll talk about kind of that part later. But, man, there was a part of me that I felt exactly the same way as you. I was like, oh, I want to know all about this Katrina Potts because she is fiery and sensual and tangible in a way that Joan Webster isn't. And I kind of get that that's kind of the point of the film is because obviously this is a romantic comedy. So at the end, Joan Webster is going to realize that, you know, she doesn't really know where she's going. She's going to take a completely different route. And it's a route that's much closer to the life that Katrina leads. Obviously she'll be leading that life with um, Torquil, Roger Livesey. But I mean, it, it, it is a very, you could paint the numbers of where the film eventually ends up, even if you don't know how it ends up there. But there is a small part of me of the, just the charisma of Katrina, man, if she had played the lead, what would this movie have been like? 
Yeah. Well, see, and and if you're, and I'm glad you brought up the paint by numbers um, uh, metaphor there because it feels like if we're sort of slotting this into the rom com uh, formula, then Katrina becomes the quirky friend, uh, right? That provides support, and because and and actually she does, uh, she does end up actually sorting, uh, sort of explaining. Uh, Jones sort of motivations to Torquil like because he, he, Torquil doesn't understand why uh, why Joan is so hellbent on getting out of there and it's right. Katrina and that keep, has to explain it to him and keep that thought in your mind because that's going to be a very important part of the next film we talk about as well as it relates to how Roger Livesey plays characters for Powell and Pressburger his <laughs> slightly oblivious <laughs> yeah his slight oblivious nature especially when it comes to women is very important to his character in both films but here yeah no right right, right to your point Katrina is the one who finally educates him to the fact that, hey, this woman is trying to escape the island, not because she wants to get married, but because if she stays with you any longer, she's going to be completely in love with you and not be able to go where she thinks she needs to go. <laughs> Though that conversation is preceded by an argument about how uh, how Joan, in her steadfast, almost dare I say, like su- suicidal need to cross the dangerous river is endangering the lives of the common folk. Uh, and that she doesn't, you know, give a shit. She's basically calling her a Karen. And I was, I was like, you know, <laughs> yes, that's also true. Like I appreciated that it worked on two levels. Like that is actually true. And also she's trying to escape Torkel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because no, she's, no, very much. Yeah. Joan is going to be married to this rich guy. And I, and I, I know detail actually I appreciate it as well is that you never actually see her fiance. There is one phone conversation uh, that they have where she says that she's been delayed and she can't uh, get to him just right away. And he kind of says, well, go see my friends. They're the only people that are any good on that island. And, uh, and, and then when she says, well, I'd rather stay in a hotel. He's like, okay, fine. I don't care. Like yeah. he's, he's very not attentive to his fiance's needs and, uh, and you don't get to see him. And so I feel like that sort of is a nice detail that you don't even like, you know where this is going. You don't actually need to see this guy who, who cares about him. <laughs> we know where this is going. Even if she doesn't know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm not mistaken, if your only film prior to this was, um, black narcissus, then this is your first introduction to the force of nature. That is Roger Livesey. Yeah. As the, well, Torquil, the Laird of Caloran. So we got to talk for just a second. What do you think about Roger Livesey as a leading man, as a romantic leading man in a film like this? You know, he's something of an, I would say he's something of an enigma in the sense that like, I think I find him compelling and he's very distinctive. Yes, but I don't is. know. I don't know if I could tell you why. <laughs> I can tell you why. Sure. Let me let let me throw this at you. Have you ever heard someone with the voice that Roger Livesey has? Because that guy has got a voice I have never heard in my life. Will you do something for me? It depends. I don't care where or when, but somewhere, sometime. Will you have the Pipers play the role and not Round Maiden? It might be done. Yeah, I, I think that's got to be it. Like, it's not that he's unattractive, but I think he really he really captures your attention with uh, with those pipes. It is, yeah, it is a very bassy, 
very upper stiff upper lip British voice. Uh, he is he he was told, and one of the things I found interesting when I was doing research about the other film we're going to talk about. Um, no one ever thought he would be a leading man because of that voice. It was just too, not nasally, but it, it, it just didn't have that leading man quality. He had leading man looks. I mean, he has a very distinct look about him. Um, but that voice is so different from anything else you heard in film at that time that producers and production companies were like, no, this guy isn't really cut for it. And he only made three films with Palin Pressburger. We're talking about two of them today. And one of them I'm going to talk about in the recommendations, but man, they knew they had something. They knew they had something with this guy. He's cut from a different cloth. Uh, and part of what I loved about it so much was when you first hear him and you and 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 you hear what what he's saying, he doesn't seem like the typical kind of sweep you off your feet leading man. But in the way that he presents himself, in the way that Palin Pressburger craft this film, this very paint by numbers romantic comedy, the way that they take you through each step of those numbers is what makes this film such a freaking delight to yeah. me. Well, and I and I think that the the shortcomings we can talk about in the plot get compensated for by just or, or rather like the perfunctoriness of the plot i guess like it's functional yeah. it, it absolutely works and it's not broken um <clears throat> but like even the things that we've already talked about the shooting on location in scotland having the the main conflict uh the, the main obstacle to joan's path being terrible weather and then her risking her life to go into this storm to try and get it like that 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 big sequence where they almost get sucked into the whirlpool like that's not a thing you see in most romantic comedies like the 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 specific location and plot choices like if i look to those things as being the things that actually make this interesting uh from a story perspective because absolutely you, you couldn't have you know you you couldn't do that specific thing um even if the rest of it's like yeah yeah they 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 hang out they she's prim and proper and the and sort of ruffles the feathers of the locals a bit and it's not good but then the more time they spend together or forced to spend together then the more time that they grow in their affection until it becomes uncomfortable and another shining katrina moment uh at one point she walks into a room where they are have been talking and she just like instantly gives them a look like oh I see what's going on here. I see what's happening. Yeah. I, I, I want to talk about the um, climax for a second because I think you're, you're, you're dead on in your, in, in your assessment. It's really the perfunctoriness of the plot. It paints by numbers and it's very obvious. But one of the things I find fascinating about it is how they overcome the very perfunctoriness of, of, of the plot. And the real big piece is – the climax where she forces young Kenny, who who doesn't have kind of two sticks to rub together and wants to marry one of the house um, girls in the in the village. Um, she gives him 20 pounds of hill in the middle of a storm, kind of row her to the island. And uh, Torquil, Roger Livesey, decides, you know, realizes that he loves her and he can't convince her to not do it. So he gets on the boat with her. And from that moment 
through the storm, this movie becomes an action picture. And it's yeah, it does. The, the tone changes incredibly. And it's amazing. Like I was watching it and part of my brain was like, wow, how did they do the effects for the whirlpool? Because there's a whole kind of um, parallel to um, the Corvecchian uh, whirlpools and, and a uh, myth about spinning hair to like anchor you, you, yourself to it off the coast of Kalaran. And uh, they get stuck and the whirlpools happen and you see it. And part of my brain was like, holy crap, how did these do these special effects in 1945? But the other part of my brain was like, oh, my God, are they going to live? Are they, is, is someone going to die? Is something going to happen? They change the tone on a dime. They make it work. And then when it's over, as it ultimately is, because, again, this is paint by numbers. And, of course, everyone is going to be OK. It feels so natural. It feels all of one picture. This is not a romantic comedy, drama, romantic comedy. It is one tone film that is able to shift seamlessly between those aspects and come back to where it ultimately wants to go. And I, I found that whole piece, even though I knew this is the type of movie that it is, of course they're going to be okay. It was incredibly gripping the entire time that that was going on. Yeah, no, for sure. The the I think what gives this movie an interesting flavor is the curse. Um, yes. Now, I don't necessarily know if I have the strongest grasp on uh, the ins and outs of the curse, but essentially um, the property that... Uh, no, it's not even the property that the fiance is on. It's just a castle on the island that they're on. Moy Castle, which is on Tobamori, where they are stranded. Right. Right. And That's so the, the castle in question. Thank you. Um, the, so there, there's this castle, uh, Castle Moy. Anyone can go there, but apparently there's a legend that there is a curse that the lairds of Kilaran uh, cannot go there. They are not allowed to go there. Everyone else can go and uh, except for the lairds. And at the time you don't know who the Laird of Killeran is, and so it doesn't matter. Um, but at one point, uh, Joan and Torquil uh, are walking somewhere, and she's, she wants to go inside the castle and look around, and he uh, doesn't want to. And this is where he reveals that he is actually the Laird of Killeran and that he's sort of in charge, and that his her fiancé is sort of basically leasing land from him, but that this is his, and because of the curse he's one of the only people who can't go inside the castle and right. she sort of, well, I know she does her, you know, well, I know what I want to do and I'm going to go inside the castle. Um, but, uh, once they finally like, I mean, again, this is a romantic comedy. We know where they're going to end up together at the end, but the way that they make the way that they tie the curse into that realization is that after they, after they go through the big storm, they end up back on Tobamori. Um, they're about to, like, they they part ways. She says, before I go, I want you to kiss me. And they kiss, and they, then they walk in opposite directions. And it's very romantic and heartfelt. And he actually decides to go into Moy Castle. And, uh, and that's where we get narration about what the curse means, why it happened, and that the curse is especially... Um, and so now that he's entered the castle, the curse has descended upon him. And I'm just going to read here from the Wikipedia, just because I'm going to screw it up otherwise. Um, if a McNeil of Killeran dares step over the threshold of Moy, he shall be chained to a woman to the end of his days and will die in his chains. And so it's at that moment when you 
figure out hear the full context of what the curse is that Joan he hears the bagpipes playing and Joan with the three pipers are marching back to him and they have their wonderful reunion and like in other romantic comedies the you know they they go apart and then they realize they change their mind and then they come back i mean that hell that was in notting hill which which we talked about right. last episode um but notting hill doesn't involve a curse <laughs> like like that to <laughs> that to me the fact that the fact that that was a detail that apparently wasn't just sort of a put in for flavor but was actually end up being like plot relevant uh was surprising to me i guess yeah their ending their endings are wonderful and i mean and the 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 joy of the ending is that the curse is not a curse the curse he realizes no this is what i need i need to have this i want to be chained to this woman um yeah the church the curse is good (laughs) yeah the, the 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 curse is good right it's it's a pitch perfect ending they are so good at endings um, at wrapping things together, at planting things at the beginning of films. And this is a huge part of our next film. You know, they plant these ideas. They plant the curse. They plant who is the Laird of Caloran. And they plant th- all these other pieces. And to have them resolve so satisfactorily at the end, it's just for every Powell and Pressburger, every Archer's film that I've seen, um, that's always been a consistent piece that they just nail the landing like few other people do there's a lot of movies where everything is great and you're always at the end and you're like yeah it, it ended man no they put so much care into their endings even when it's kind of a rote of course they're happily ever after ending they do it with a panache and a flair uh that is unique to the way that they make films and i i can't say enough about how wonderful <laughs> and just light and airy and beautifully photographed this film is. Um, you could have picked a ton of films, some I've seen and some I haven't. And just that you picked this and I didn't know really anything about it and went into it having kind of the same response I pretty much have to every Powell and Pressburger film just reasserts my belief that for me, uh, these are two of the finest filmmakers to ever g- grace uh, grace the earth, in my opinion. So I, for one, if, if, if nothing else, uh, uh, bow to your wisdom in picking this film for our discussion today john well hell i'm not gonna top any of that but thank you uh <laughs> i had a had a really good time with uh with watching it uh for the show why don't uh why don't we take this opportunity to transition to uh to your pick for the night sounds good So my pick is 1943's The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Um, This is uh, an epic in every sense of the word. It's almost three hours long. It is in Technicolor, even though it is uh, two years earlier than the movie we just talked about. I know where I'm going. Um, to, To kind of encapsulate this in a brief summary does not do the film justice. But in a nutshell... 
This is the story of Major General Clive Candy. It is also about the character of the British Army person. It is also about the nature of war and the nature of the rules of war and how the British played that and how that gets subverted by the Germans over the course of 40 years. It is a reminiscence on time, on love, on character. It is um, a scathing indictment I think of of what Germany was doing at, at the time. Again, this was filmed in 1943 in Britain at the time of World War II. Um, it is at once a parody of the stiff upper lip we play by the rules kind of English character persona. It is also at the time a scathing indictment as to what was going on and how Germany was was what was fighting in the war. It's also just a beautiful character study. It's also a love story. It's also about how we chase this elusive love over time and how it kind of never changes. But it's also very much about how things do change and how our perspectives can potentially change and how if we are to move forward, we must change. And it's all done in the most gorgeous of Technicolor. It is all done very similar to what we talked about and I know where I'm going. It is all done where Things are laid out in the very beginning and over the course of, I believe, two hours and 44 minutes in the in the final restored uncut version of this film, those things are picked up and they are uh, revealed and they are played upon um, to and it all kind of ends up in this, again, beautiful ending where we circle back to the 40 years and we see a man who realizes that he must change if he is to keep going, if he is to continue being the person that he wants to be, what that means that he has to do. Uh, it stars Roger Livesey in perhaps the greatest role that he has ever been in. It stars, as much as we're going to talk about Roger Livesey, um, this movie also stars uh, Anton Valbrook as his kind of nemesis slash best friend, Theo Kretschmar-Schuldorf, who I want to talk about at length because even though Roger Livesey is very much the star, he is Colonel Blimp, he is Clive Candy, the arc of understanding falls to Anton and then it, 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 it falls upon Anton to teach that lesson to Roger. Uh, it stars the ridiculous, Ridiculously beautiful Deborah Kerr in three roles, uh, playing different characters over the course of 40 years, but they're kind of all the same character. And not enough is talked about with how incredible she is and how much she changes in each role to become so distinctive. Um, there are films that uh, really seep into my DNA and change the type of person that I am. This is one of those films for me. It is one of my favorite films. Uh, there is so much about it that I find every time that I see it. I guess, John, I, I having no perspective on this myself, because again, it is one of my favorite films of all time. You coming into this as someone who's Vaguely new to Powell and Pressburger, I know that each of us watched a couple of films prior, um, but this was kind of the one you watched the most recently. And if you're going to dive headfirst into Powell and Pressburger, uh, this is probably not the film you want to kind of start with. But you got there, you hit it. 
So how did it affect you and in, and in, in, in kind of getting through all of it? What was your your takeaway with the movie? Well, having seen it the <clears throat> having seen it the first time, uh, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, the my there definitely are things from the movie in what you said that I that I took away from. Um, I think that because of its like when we talk about it being epic and it being almost three hours long, the the. I think the epic nature of the storytelling is such that we're trying to, it's not like everything is like visually pristine and gorgeous and amazing and such, but the, this is still largely like character piece. This is not like, like say like a citizen Kane kind of thing. It's not, you know, the battle at Helm's deep kind of epic. Um, And so, because a lot of it is reliant on sort of, the, the it is is an epic that is fo- focused on sort of the development and changes uh, or notable not changes in character over time um i feel like there's a lot more that i felt like i could only absorb so much mm. um in terms of what is uh what's going on in the movie there's definitely things that catch you right away but i almost want to say that like whatever i think about it now i'm almost certain to discover like there's i know that there's a lot more out there to discover on further rewatches like as 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 intimidating as it is because it is almost three hours long i almost think it demands more than one viewing does that make sense it does yeah and and i'll be honest i mean there the this movie kind of ebbs and and flows if i'm if i'm being honest i love the beginning i think the beginning is one of the best beginnings i've ever seen in a film it does take a little bit of a dip toward the middle and then kind of slowly rise back up as it gets back to the forties where the beginning takes place. Um, I think you make a really good point about this is an epic movie that is not epic in the way that we typically think of epic films. There's no huge set pieces. In fact, they take pains to move away from any massive set piece that this movie would have. There's a duel in the beginning of the film that takes place in 1902 between um, Clive Candy, who at this point is a young um, decorated soldier who is hearing that the German is uh, Germany is 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 basically spreading false propaganda about um, how the English are treating women and children in the Boer War in Africa. So he decides he's going to go to Berlin and he's going to do counter propaganda to kind of speak about what's really happening. And in the course of that, not only does he meet the first iteration of Deborah Kerr, Edith Hunter, um, who is a governess who is um, a, a very modern agitator who wants to espouse the virtues of what England is doing as well, um, he winds up going there and, and insulting the Germans by saying, like, oh, the person who's spreading these rumors is basically a rat. I knew him in Africa. And if you take any if you take any of his words of values, where well, you're a bunch of idiots too. So being that this is 1902 and honor is at stake, there's a duel that is set up for satisfaction. And it's at this point that he meets um, Teo, Teo um, Kreshmar Sherlock, played by Anton Volbrook, uh, who they, they don't know each other. They just He randomly picked a straw to say, OK, you're going to defend the honor of the Germans by dueling this person. So there's an early first act climax where you're going to see this duel. Uh, between these two people, these two people who are going to become the best of friends and lean on each other over the course of 40 years. And instead of showing the duel, 
They start the duel and then the camera does this beautiful kind of pan out of the action and it rises above the gymnasium where this thing is taking place, leaves the gymnasium and kind of settles outside in this beautiful kind of winter day where the snow is falling down and then continues to go into a um, carriage where Edith Hunter, Deborah Kerr, is, you know, uh, worried about Clive Candy and and what's going to happen. And it's very uh, typical of the rest of this film. Every time there is a potential for a set piece, the camera is not, the, the story is not invested in the set piece itself. It's invested in the the characters and their response to what is happening. And it, it's, it's almost not interested. Um, so it, it, there is a bit of like, man, okay, what's going to happen next? I'm just going to keep sitting with these people. But at the same time, I feel very strongly that the more you see this, the more you notice these little moments and the more you become invested in these characters, um, you kind of see what Powell and Pressburger are doing. They're not interested in a war picture as such. They're not interested in action as such. They're interested in the effects of war and the effects of action on these people. And how those actions um, twist, turn, or solidify their character over the course of a prolonged period. And I think you don't see any better example of that than what happens between Clive Candy and Teo, Roger Livesey and Anton Valbrook. And again, I'm going to talk about, man, uh, they're all fantastic, but Anton Valbrook just murdered me in this, this movie because you see his arc of a man who they say straight out, he doesn't believe in dueling, but he drew the, he drew the straw and he's, he's, um, he's a patriot of his nation. So he'll go through the duel and they, then they become the best of friends after the duel. He, uh, Teo gets a huge, uh, cut on his head that requires 12 stitches. Uh, Clive Candy almost gets his upper lip ripped off, which requires eight stitches. And while they're convalescing for two months, they become the best of friends. You see then later on in World War I, uh, Anton uh, Teo gets captured. And he has, uh, and Clive, who is always the steadfast, very much like Torquil in I Know Where I'm Going, he's very steadfast in his beliefs and his nature. You know, he wants to see his friend, even though his friend is in a, a basically a war camp after the end of the war. Uh, and they're their reaction to each other is very different because Anton at this point is a steadfast German. And he doesn't believe in the ridiculousness of the English playing by rules. And he mocks them. And he says these stupid English with their rules, they think that they're going to build this back up. We'll look these children in the eye and that will be how we take them. Um, and again, because this plays out over 40 years, we then get to World War II and we see a very different Anton. And it's one of the most moving pieces of the film where he now is applying for asylum in England because he has seen the rise of Nazism and he's seen the rise of Hitler and uh, he has suffered from some very personal sacrifices uh, without going in, in into it um, and he has to now talk to the asylum seeker to justify why he wants to apply for asylum and it's heartbreaking and you see this arc of the character of war and what it does to a person. And because Teo is able to go through that, that arc, when Clive Candy, Roger Livesey can't, 
it's Anton who has to help him get through that. And the way that he helps him get through that kind of makes up the third act of the film. And as, as little action as there is, as stuffy as it gets at, at, at times, I actually found... As much as I love Roger Livesey, and I think I texted to you, like, anytime I see Roger Livesey in a movie, I'm happier for it because he is such a unique presence. But Anton Valbrook's role in this movie and his arc in this movie was so riveting to me, especially the ending, that that's what holds the entire film together and helps me to understand kind of what Powell and Pressburger are trying to do. Um, we'll talk later. I know um, one of the other films we talked about might be one of your recommendations which was a straight up propaganda film. Like they were told, make a propaganda film to help the war effort. And they made a particular film. This to me works better than any propaganda film that they intentionally made because it shows so much of the devastation of war, the devastation of what was happening, the way that war was being played. Um, and it does it in a way that is intensely personal uh, in the character of Teo and what he has to go through and then how he has to translate that to Clive Candy that I, I can't. I can't not be completely invested and completely devastated as the ups and downs of the film go through for me. For sure. And I, I'm glad that we're talking about Anton Walbrook's uh, so much because having also watched The Red Shoes, a movie that oh, everyone should go see, yes. uh, he has a very different energy in that movie and like it, it's it, it, it by different i mean like amplified by several factors um <laughs> but but in this movie he you really get a yeah, like he doesn't have to resort to crazy histrionics or anything to really um yeah like the the, the soul of the movie is is firmly lodged with him um and I think, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the the propaganda nature of it as well. For me, the the relationship between Candy and uh, and Tio uh, is sort of that's where I sort of find uh, on first viewing. That's where that's how I'm tracking. Not even necessarily so much the specifics of the plot, but how these two people exist and how they relate to each other over time. And then the other part is that like, and and the specific question that sort of starts the movie. And you see bits and pieces of it throughout the end. And and again, like uh, I know where I'm going, where they really nail the, the ending. The, I feel like the ending of this movie where they come back and yes. Candy has not changed his ways. And we definitely need to talk about uh, the character of Candy and uh, his, his whole thing. Um, but the idea that we like, for better or worse, you can't you like the Germans are not respecting the rules of engagement. And so we, if we want to win, then we can't, we, we, we can't stick to the rules that the Germans aren't playing by that. That to me almost feels like in a, in a three hour movie, it's not, I don't think it rises to the level of propaganda, but because they have experience in that, it does feel like it comes across as a very strong message. Like this is what the movie is about is like, and, and, and because as much as you can, you can uh, sympathize with Candy and his character, even as you sort of make fun of him uh, for all of his foibles. Like the, it seems to me that that the movie's message ultimately is, yeah, we we kind of 
we kind of have to play dirty too if we're gonna if we're gonna win because the the Germans aren't gonna give us that luxury. I agree with you a hundred percent. This this movie is saying something. Um, I don't know that it's a hundred percent saying we have to stoop to what the Germans are doing. And we can talk about the ending and 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 what that means. But this movie is very critical of not learning the lessons of the past, right? Which which Teo says right out to Clive. He's like, "You didn't learn your lesson. You you didn't win World War One. Germany lost World War One, and you didn't learn the moral of what happened in World War One. And now you're gonna pay the. He says he literally says you're gonna pay the fee again now because you have not learned it. Uh, and it's such an devastating moment. I mean, it's funny to think about World War Two. I mean, at this point, it's it's eighty years away, but I, that doesn't feel like forever. Like why? Why? Whatever do you mean, Chris? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. It's still. I mean, at least for me, it still resonates a lot because I grew up in the. I grew up in the shadow of, of of that. My father came from Germany in the nineteen in the early nineteen fifties because of how terrible it was post Germany. That's something that Teo talks about in the film. Um, Anton Valbrook himself, uh, just to give a little bit more of historical context. So, Anton Valbrook was an Austrian German actor and performer. He was half Jewish and he was homosexual. Uh, he fled Germany in the thirties, just like Teo does, because he realized. I am going to be killed here because of what is happening, because of just the alarming nature of what is going on, because they are not playing by those rules. I have to get out or I will lose my life. Uh, it's a real interesting thing to know that in advance and watch Volbrick go through the scene where he's applying for asylum. And he talks through, and I'll, I'll just do the spoiler. It's a two hour and 45 minute movie. Uh, he talks about the fact that he was, he, so Excuse me. He marries Edith Hunter, the first iteration of Deborah Kerr in in the movie, which was also the love of Clive Candy's life. And then when he talks about the asylum, he talks about how um, she wanted to go home to England when everything started to get bad. He wanted to stay because he thought he could help fix the country. And over the course of their staying in Germany to try to help fix the country, both of their children became full-fledged Nazis and she died. And the kids never even came to the funeral. And he realized he had nothing there. And his life was lost and his family was lost. So he had to come back to England because it was the only thing that kind of reminded him of the life and the love that he had before. And uh, it's, it's almost painful to hear that amazing soliloquy, completely unbroken. It just focuses on Valbrook's face as he goes through it and to know the history of what he had to go through as a real person to get, you know, away from that regime in the late thirties. It's, it's devastating. Yeah. My, uh, I read up on after watching this and being so spellbound by Volberg's performance, I, I looked up his Wikipedia and I caught that detail yeah. you mentioned about leaving, uh, returning, not returning from America, doing some uh, acting work there, not to Austria, but to England for the reasons mentioned. And I was just like, oh, holy shit. That like that's the, the, this isn't just performing. That's actually his life. Yeah. Like that's that's what happened. He, he stopped soon after. I mean, he stopped acting in the fifties. I, I I think died tragically, kind of young. But uh, this is I, this and the red shoes. If you're going to see anything, watch this in the red shoes and see an actor who, in two very distinct different performances, you cannot take your eyes off of him. Now we we we've danced around it. Uh, we got to talk about Roger Livesey as as. 
as Colonel as uh, Clive Candy. I am. I'm all for it. One of the things that struck me again, talking about how modern this film is, and if we can, without spoilers, reference it back to the finale of the second season of The Mandalorian. <laughs> How incredible is the makeup in this movie? <laughs> yes. Because in the beginning of the film, oh God, I just... <laughs> Roger Livesey is playing a basically 65, 66 plus year old man who is bald, fat with a huge mustache. And it is amazing. <laughs> When you then cut, well, you don't even cut because in that beautiful kind of unbroken scene in the pool, then the young Roger Livesey comes out and you see him with a full head of hair, no mustache, no nothing, you know, slim build. It's movie magic, but God damn, the movie magic is incredible in this film (laughs) when it comes to the aging process. Yeah, that my reaction to that moment was twofold. One was I did not actually recognize that that was Roger yeah. Lindsay. I thought at first I was I was like wow this is actually really like later when I realized wait that was supposed to be Roger Livesey that was amazing because I didn't see it at all um so good on them for that and then of course when uh when the camera pans past them so you're only seeing the bath and then he emerges a couple seconds later as the younger version of himself that's just like holy shit that that is some that is some next level filmmaking yeah. for sure <laughs> but then and then, of course, you go through like at that point, you go through his 40 years and how you get to that point. Right. But and, and, and again, speaking to the ending, when you do finally return to when you finally get back to the point where they're doing the exercise and I see him the second time and they replay that scene, I'm like, OK, yeah, that is. Yes, I now recognize from the transit, like having gone through the different stages of his life, like literal like aging process, I recognize yeah. him and it hits the. Like and along with everything else that you've gone through, you now that moment hits different. Um, you you now much more fully understand, which of course is you know the point of the whole thing to uh, to realize that while his let's say uh, unwillingness to change does make does sort of leave him behind in some senses, he's not you know, the cartoon character that you assume he is going in. Right. The, 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 the mustache is to hide the battle scar from his duel in 1902. The stomach is from, I, I mean, the, the, the one thing is I realized they didn't go too much into why he became fat, but I can only attribute it to, he had a very hard life. He, he lost the love of his life. She, she died. And then he just kind of became accustomed to either being at home and in the club and eating or being at war. That was the only two things that he knew. And it kind of, it, it kind of changed him, but uh, it's just a wonderful, his transition is just wonderful. And when you get to the end, to your point and you, it comes back to the current time, it now makes a lot more sense. Like in the beginning, you see this old fuddy duddy man beat the crap out of a young soldier, which you're kind of like, really, is he going to beat the crap out of him? Once you see, Candy's life over the course of 40 years, I have no doubt that he would have beat the shit out of Spud if Spud had accosted him in the Turkish bath. Clive Candy would have beat the tar out of him in that show. Um, and, and it does come to the ending again. So this ending works very similar to I Know Where I'm Going. There's a really nice parallel here. Where so in the course of World War One, um, he meets the second iteration of Deborah Kerr, who is uh, let me remember her name. It's Barbara Barbara Wynn, uh, which I thought was something really interesting too. Uh, in the rest of the movie, um, he takes her name, which is not something that's a very modern piece. He was always Clive Candy, 
But when he marries her, he takes her name as well, and, and they become Wind Candy. Which is just one of those things. This is a movie that really prides itself on um, women being modern, women being self-sufficient and self-serving and thinking for themselves. Um, Edith Hunter is very much a part of that. Barbara Wynn is much more of the... Um, you know, she's, she's very rich. She's, she's kind of quiet, but, she, and she'll do whatever her husband wants. But the fact that what her husband wants is to go to all these different countries and hunt and, and war and soldier. And she's like, oh yeah, no, no, I will totally go to China, to Italy, to France with you as they go through the photo album and be there with you as you soldier and hunt. Um, there's a mod, there's a modernity to that, that is striking as well. And then when she becomes Angela Cannon, Johnny, the um, driver in the 40s for him, she's also a very self-made woman and loves to drive fast and wants to do what she wants to do. Um, it's 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 very striking. But um, what happens uh, that that is the parallel to I know where I'm going is when he meets Barbara in World War One and they get married and they move back to his house that was his aunt's. Uh, they talk about how the house has always stood and, uh, you know, even if there's another war or a flood, um, they'll be okay. And she goes, well, don't ever change. Don't ever change. Even if, um, don't ever change until the, the, the first floor becomes a lake, um, from flooding, which is something that they never think would ever happen. Which is definitely foreshadowing, right? Like that, I heard Again, that. Again, yeah, like, very much like very much like I'll never go into the castle. There's a curse that'll never happen. Oh, it can't possibly happen. Same thing occurs. So at the end of the movie, of course, during the Blitz of London, the house gets bombed and gets completely demolished. And then at the end, um, after the exercise is over, and uh, Candy decides, well, you know. He got the better of me. I know um, there's also like a weird twist where um, Angela, the, the the new Deborah Kerr, she's the girlfriend of the guy who he beat the crap out of and and and, and arrested him. He says, you know, I'm probably not going to press any charges. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure it's okay. They walk across the street to his house and Angela casually mentions, oh, they put a water you know, tank here to, you know, and he looks in the basement of his now demolished house and he sees what ostensibly is a lake and he sees a leaf falling on it and the curse or the saying comes back and he realizes that uh, he can change. He can be a different person and it's not going to kill him. It's not going to destroy who he is. And the movie ends, it ends very quietly. It doesn't end on like this rambunctious, they're together and they're going to do this. It ends with a parade coming down the street of the younger class and him kind of resigning himself to, I have to support what is changing. I have to accept the change that is coming. The time that I was important has passed. I don't lose value, but I need to accept what is coming and it's 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 just a it's a beautiful ending to a beautiful film. I, I I think if you had made it more robust, if you had made it more kind of on the nose, uh, with hey I'm gonna hey young man I'm gonna take you out to dinner because I didn't go out to dinner when I was a twenty year old idiot and it, you know if they had done something more kind of like that more of what I would think like the U S Hollywood studio would have done. It would have diminished the fragility and beauty of that last moment. Uh, and it's just it's just such a quiet, lovely thing to have happen. The look on Candy's face as 
And man, even through that makeup, again, Roger Livesey is so good in this. Uh, he's in fat makeup. He's bald. He's got the huge mustache. And you see his face go from consternation to just kind of peace and tranquility and I can change and I can accept what's coming. My time is done and it's time to accept what these young men have to do to go to the future because I was exactly like them. Uh, the way that he shows all of that on his face and the movie just ends on that is again, it's uh, <laughs> I try not to get emotional as I recall it. It strikes something in my DNA. It strikes something to again, like those, for me, early mornings in the late 70s, early 80s, watching these types of films with my father and knowing his history, you know, coming out of Germany with his family and being ostracized and having to think through that stuff. Um, this is a language that I feel is in my DNA. It's a language that I instantly respond to. And to see it done with the perfection that Powell and Pressburger are able to do on this film is something that I personally will treasure forever. Uh, me and Martin Scorsese, who also loves this film above all reason. So I feel like if no one else, I'm in pretty good company with Marty in loving this film as passionately as I do. If you don't like this movie, take it up with Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he's not spending all his time uh, dealing with people who think who are upset that he doesn't like Marvel movies. Or <laughs> yeah, I'm shit. sure. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Roger Livesey's uh, buffoonish obliviousness um, because oh. I think we got to talk about that. Yeah. The way like, cause like I do think they really earn the land, like they really earn the, the, the subtle transformation, like the, where he does sort of admit that, you know, he can change and he needs to, it really is earned, but that does come on the tail end of almost three hours of him being the most clueless uh, person that I think I've ever seen in a movie. Like the, and, and, and I think that effect actually only comes with time as we are now, you know, hundred years post world war one and the ideas of like gentlemanly warfare and like those sort of ideas that are presented as old fashioned in the forties, like when they made mm -hmm. this movie are even only more so now. Um, he like the, the, and I'm, and I'm sure I would have felt differently if I had been, you know, in his born in his time, but like the idea that this is a gentlemanly sport and that wars used to be a day long and you would, Oh, I'm excited to go to war because this is a, a fun and noble way to spend an afternoon or something. Yeah. Just is, well, there's a great, uh, it's wild. They, they, they do a great parallel to that with, I mean, when he's not doing this, he's hunting for sport and there's that wonderful transition yeah. when it transitions uh, between 1902 and the Boer Wars and, and Africa to uh, World War One, where he's in the room with his aunt and she goes, you know, and if you ever want to put any more of your hunting trophies here, you can. And it does that kind of transition of he walks away and his shadow gets larger and larger against the wall. And then you start to have the montage of different animal heads that pop up with the dates. And it's funny as it keeps going, it goes later and later, different and different heads until it gets to the crown of a Kaiser general. And it says, you know, German general 19, you know, 19 or something like that. And then it goes into world war one. This is a guy who thinks of war as nothing but a sport, you know, and it's a sport that has rules and guidelines and it's what you adhere to. 
And they make the most of that in a number of ways throughout the film. He is completely oblivious. Just as he's completely oblivious to Wendy Hiller's love and I know where I'm going, he's not only oblivious to, he even admits it, uh, he didn't realize that he loved Deborah Kerr uh, um, when she's Edith Hunter in the first episode during the Boer War. He didn't realize it until he already left, until he already congratulated Teo, who said, I'm in love with her and I want to marry her. It's when he leaves, all of a sudden he's like, oh, I loved her. And it's not till much later at the end of the film when he realizes that war is not something to be taken like a game or to be taken lightly or to be taken like one of his other sports. Um, it, it takes Anton and it takes, it takes the exercise in losing that way for him to understand that the way that I always did it is not the way that it's being fought now and I need to be able to move on. And even if I can't contribute to let other people maybe contribute to do what is needed, his obliviousness uh, is is paramount <laughs> to the 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 aims that Pal and Pressburger are trying to impress over the course of the film. And he's wonderful at it. He is wonderful in his obliviousness. Uh, part of it is his voice. He just has that stodgy kind of, I say, sir, like he's got this, I, I, I can't even do it justice. Um, I invite all of you and, and John, I'll, I'll rely on you to at least find a clip somewhere of Roger Livesey speaking so that everyone listening to this knows what I'm talking about. No one speaks like Roger Livesey. He speaks like a guy who is so suppressed. And it's holding so much in. But the reality is when you watch the films that he's not like that or he's like that for intent and then is able to let loose later. Um, I, I don't think anyone else could have portrayed that obliviousness like 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 he could. It is so pertinent to the point that these guys are making. And it's just another reason, just another reason why this is, again, just one of the greatest films I've ever had the the pleasure of being able to experience. So. And and the way that uh, and and I think one last we don't necessarily have to dwell on it long but one last thing that just sort of I think actually helps the movie with time is the British uh, colonial uh, like the the there's there is a colonial a small colonial thread that runs through him like because it because that starts with him in the mm -hmm. Boer War yeah. right and uh, and then he and then the I mean as a as a filmmaking technique I like the use of like the appearance of all the different stuffed heads to mark the passage of time and again that's just more clever visual shit but like all those animals are animals he's hunting in Africa right so the the idea that like he has certain ideas about the you know what's proper and good Very and war much, yeah. um while it, watching those details in 2020 being mindful that like right british had a, the, the british had a lot of colonies in africa and they certainly wouldn't feel great about any of this help really only like i think that actually helps the movie underscore just how much out of touch he is as a as a character certainly could not have been in the intent of the filmmakers i think when they were making it but i read that now and i'm like actually that that actually it tracks. Does. Like it still tracks. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's, it's kind of wild. I would bet dollars to donuts. If that's still a term people use, I hope so. That if Powell and Pressburger had continued their relationship and were still making films later on, that would be something I feel they would address. It, 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 there is definitely like a weird. I thought the same thing of like, wow, they're in Africa killing a lot of shit, you know, and, and taking the, my own kind of anti hunting stance aside, um, there is the, 
something else is mentioned earlier well um, earlier as well I think when they're talking about reconstructing Germany to Teo after he lost the war he's like well look at what we did to South Africa we're so benevolent that we helped you know and you know there is I don't know if it's just the twinge of like being in 2020 to your point and being like yeah, you know, got kind of dicks, being, you know, owning all these different colonies. Or if there was something in Powell and Pressburger as well, I would like to think that they were modern enough to kind of be like, yeah, you know, we really should not be doing shit like that and colonizing and lording over other territories and stuff like that. And, you know, if that would have been something further on that they would pursue or that they did pursue it, maybe it was a film that I haven't seen yet. I, I haven't seen every film that they've done, but uh, you, 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 even if you take it down to like the, the, like the absolute, like any sort of political or international consequences, if you take it down to the literal personal level of inviting your friend to dinner, to meet your other friends, all of whom just fought a war against you. Like if I had, if, if I had a friend that did that to me, I would not feel like I was being treated very well. And so when he, his immediate reaction is to give that speech that you quoted earlier to his friends being like, we're going to show these children what's up. I was like, okay, this is probably just the result of the fact that his friend just took him to dinner where all of his, uh, all the, all the generals that just beat him in war, uh, are being like, Oh, this is fine. We'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm like, this man's world just disappeared. Like, I don't, you, and you're rubbing his, and they don't get it. It seems like like, he's so, he's so like, do you not understand? I have no life. They're not going to let a standing army. I have nothing to do. We're destitute. And they're all just like, Paul, (laughs) you'll be fine. It's like, I think, I don't think you're right. I'm like, "Mm, I think there's a knowing prod there, uh, by Powell and and Pressburger that it's just, that's such a wonderful moment. I'm glad you brought that back up because it just, it, again, it, 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 it speaks to that there's more on these guys' mind than just the pro-British kind of, hey, you know, pip-pip and all that kind of chap stuff that, that, that's going on. There's a deeper level here that you can dive into. Well, after that uh, exuberant love fest of a podcast episode, which I was happy, uh, as always, to do with you, it's time for us to uh, start the come down and do some po- uh, some movie recommendations. Chris, what do you uh, got first? If we have to. Well, you know what? The love fest is going to continue a little bit more because I'm going to recommend two films by Pal and Pressburger. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, Strap in. I can't two help hours. it. No, I'll be very brief. So, um we're going to talk about one of the ones that I watched specifically for kind of research for this episode um, that I had not seen before. And that is the 1944 film, A Canterbury Tale. Um, it, it's pretty much everything that we've talked about before. Uh, it is black and white. And in, in this case, it is also very much of the time. It's about World War II. The thing that's interesting about it is most people probably are aware of the Canterbury Tales of, Jeff, of Geoffrey Chaucer. And the film starts out like that. It starts out kind of uh, quoting the Canterbury Tales, and it takes place in that time period. And there's a um, group of travelers traveling to Canterbury, one of which is a guy like a falconer. He's got a falcon on his uh, arm, and he lets the falcon fly to chase some 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 birds uh, that they're going to prey upon. 
And it's a wonderful moment. Again, just talk about the imagination of Powell and Pressburger. Uh, This will lead to the plot of the film. The hawk goes up, and as it dives down to get its prey, it transitions to a fighter plane. And then we're in World War II. And the movie is about three people who come upon um, Kent, which is where Powell grew up, and this is kind of a love letter to his hometown as well. Uh, They're there for various reasons. One's an American soldier played by an American soldier who had no acting experience beforehand. Um, uh, John, I, th- I think that was uh, John Sweet, if I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to remember who this is. Um, yeah, Sergeant John Sweet. He, he plays um, Bob Johnson. Um, it's him. It's a young woman. Um, Sheila Sim as Allison Smith. And it's also um, Dennis Price as Sergeant Peter Gibbs. So they are three people, very distinct backgrounds, um, coming to the town of Kent. And uh, they're abandoned at the train station for one night. They can't get to Canterbury. And what happens is as they're walking up the town, (laughs) they are... um, a a crime is perpetrated upon them. (laughs) And uh, they wind up staying in Kent to figure out the, um, who committed the crime. And over the course of that, their lives are explored. The town is explored. The pastoral beauty of England is explored. It's a wonderful movie. Um, but the thing that's wonderful about it is when I describe it like that, it seems somewhat chilling. The crime in question is someone is running around at night when women are about and sticking glue in their hair and running away. It is the mad glue sticker. And they have to figure out what's happening. And what's interesting is once they figure it out, it ties into the whole story and and what's happening in the war and how war affects this very uh, provincial and rural town. It's it's a again, it's it's everything beautiful that you loved about. I know where I'm going. It's largely shot on location. Gorgeous scenery. Um, the um, cathedral at Canterbury plays an enormous part of the film. It has that amazing ending where all these threads are laid out in the beginning and everything ties up in this gorgeous ending that speaks to the larger of the whole. So if you want to get, um, and it's not quite two hours long, so it's, it's a little bit shorter than Life and Death of Colonel Blim. So high, highly recommended. The other one that I want to talk about because it has a little bit more of an interesting kind of cool plot to it is 1946's A Matter of Life and Death. Um, and as we discovered, it doesn't really have anything to do with the Iron Maiden album of the same name, which I will say is equally, maybe not equally, but I really like that album as well. This stars um, Roger Livesey as well, although he's in a supporting role. Uh, The main star here is David Niven. And the thing that's interesting about A Matter of Life and Death is it is partially filmed in black and white and partially filmed in color. And it is very spiritual and supernatural and metaphysical. It's about a pilot uh, who uh, crashes and they think he is dead. So when heaven comes to claim him, they claim him by mistake. And uh, he is not quite dead. And they, 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 he's, he's supposed to be dead, but they miss him because there's a fog. So he's running around England now, falling in love and going on all these adventures. But heaven is like, oh, you know, you're dead. We have to go and get you. And the parts in heaven are in black and white. The parts on earth are in color. 
and there's ghosts and there's spirits and there's a trial and and there's the the representation of heaven as this massive escalator that goes up and never ends um and man it is just a hoot think of like think of like the british version of the wizard of oz or narnia kind of put together in this kind of religious adventure david niven is in top david niven form roger livesey Man, I would have wished he was the star. He's not. He plays a supporting character, but every time he's in it, he's wonderful. Uh, it's just incredible to see like how these guys play with ghosts and spirits and the mechanisms of like what happens when you die. You go into a waiting room with all these other people. And in the middle of World War II, there's a hell of a lot of people in heaven because people are dying left and right, which is what you know affects the screw-up and they miss him by mistake. So... It's not all just kind of um, breezy or stiff kind of British characterizations. There's some real weird fun to be had from Powell and Pressburger. So I, I, I recommend if you want to get off the beaten path of like the what some people might infer as the stodgy British film, check both of these out. Um, A Matter of Life and Death is just beautiful and stellar and has some weird, crazy supernatural stuff going on. And then A Canterbury Tale is, is just... Um, just a, a a gorgeous, fun, hey, what's the mystery that we have to solve kind of thing, um, but done with the panache of a Pressburger script and, and, and Powell direction that just makes it lovely to see. So those are my recommendations, John. My recommendation isn't going to be nearly as, uh, I guess, uh, widespread uh, or even as uh, uh, just elaborate and well thought out uh mine is the 1941 uh movie 49th parallel uh i believe it was released in the u.s as the invaders this is a uh, an early powell and pressburger movie where this is like this is literally a propaganda film um they uh but the reason why i find it to be interesting uh is because the because the, the the premise of the movie is that Nazis who are trying to evade uh, capture end up uh, a handful of them ended up stranded in Hudson's Bay in, in in northern Canada, and they basically try to uh, crisscross uh, the Canadian prairies. Uh, I think I don't remember if they're trying to like get to Japan or something, but like they're 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 ultimately these secret Nazis trying to sneak their way through Canada. And everyone has heard that there are Nazis in Canada and the idea and, and the, the the movie takes place in several different episodes where they run into different communities of Canadians. And it's for me as a as a canadian it's fun to see a canada represented on film it's again that location thing that they do so well um <clears throat> applied to where i live uh, which is wild like one of the sequences happens in a town that's literally 40 uh, an hour and a half away from me um and again that's happening in like the 40s which is wild um it's also f- um but it's also fun to see how like and, and again like the the canadianisms of it like the fact that they're in hudson bay means like trying to work out the geography of how they get there is fun and the performances as well. Like, um, Laurence Olivier is, uh, a play has a small role near the beginning as, as a Frenchman and his accent is just simply uh, wild <laughs> yeah. and has to be seen to be believed like legend, legend of the screen. Uh, um, uh, <clears throat> we can- 
it's, it's we hard can't to stress this enough. Laurence Olivier is batshit insane in this movie. And to watch this movie and to think that they wanted him <laughs> to play Clive Candy in Colonel Blimp blows my mind that he gave this performance yeah. in 49th Parallel and they're like, we should have him lead uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Anton uh, Anton Wahlberg, uh, beloved yes. Anton Wahlberg, as previously discussed, uh, has a small role as a uh, as the spokesperson for a Hutterite colony in one of probably the best moments of the movie, where the head Nazi, seeing they've landed at this southern Manitoba Hutterite colony, and they know that they're German, and so they're like, "Oh, great! We'll we'll just tell them that we're the Nazis and they're German, so like they'll be on board with us." And then the uh, he gives this big, elaborate speech about how great the Third Reich is, or whatever. And then Anton Walbrook goes on this sort of like quietly impassioned rebuke of everything they stand for, because I guess this Nazi had never heard of fucking Hutterites <laughs> before. Like I don't know what he expected. It is. It is. It is both beautiful and ultra cringy because, like, you just like, you know how this is gonna go, right? And he swings so hard and misses. It's my so favorite much. scene in the movie. Um, it's so good. Yeah, it's you. You actually like if you don't go in for the the interesting and fun depictions of Canadians uh, uh, for its accuracy or inaccuracy, as it were, uh, just watch that scene. Uh, with uh, with Anton Wahlberg and just enjoy the deliciousness of how hard that guy yeah. fails. Leave it to Palin Pressburger to create a propaganda film where the lead characters are all Nazis. An anti-Nazi yeah. propaganda film where the lead characters are Nazis. It's, again, you, you can't make this stuff yeah. up, man. These guys can do anything, including, again, even though you just said if you watch anything, watch the scene with Anton Valbrook, but please also watch Batshit Insane Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> because you have to see it to believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's, it's wild. And like, and, and like the, the propaganda nature of it is, comes from these guys going through like various communities and, and in every single one of them, uh, every single time they try to like find comfort so I was to try and convince people to like help them out and all the Canadians just are roundly 100 yeah. percent nah fuck off like this is they, they just get continually uh, and repeatedly shut down by the Canadians and I think that's the idea of like you know come on Canada you can do it um or I guess also the Americas as uh, the U.S. as well because I think this was meant to try and convince the Americans to change their opinion because they hadn't right. joined the war yet Doing this at this time, uh, we, we, we talked about this earlier. I, I needed this at the end of the year. So it's the end of 2020, guys. Uh, it's been a hell of a year for a lot of people. It seems like, at least here in the U.S., things are moving in a slightly different direction. We have voted out of office, although whether he'll leave or not is yet to be decided, but we seem to have voted out of office an absolute tyrant. Uh, we have now two vaccines for uh, COVID-19 uh, looking like they're being distri di distributed. So hopefully there are better times coming, but it's been a rough year. And when we were talking about, hey, what do you want to watch? We were throwing out a couple of different things. And uh, I had just on a whim, I was looking up, I was watching actually 
again, this is not a recommendation, although I recommend it wholeheartedly. I was watching The Thief of Baghdad, which is an Alexander Korda picture uh, that had a lot of different directors, one of which is Michael Korda, uh, Michael Powell. Uh, and I was watching that because it was one of the films that I grew up as uh, grew up with as a kid. And it just kind of had me going, oh, what else is on the Criterion channel that Powell uh, directed? And all this stuff came up and we kind of at the last second I had said, John to you. I'm like, Hey, do you mind if we just do Powell and Pressburger, uh, for the next episode, as opposed to doing something holiday themed or something like that. And I can't tell you how good this has been for my heart and for my soul. If I'm going to end 2020, uh, to end it with some of my favorite films and, and my favorite filmmakers and to be introduced 49th Parallel, Canterbury Tale, um, I Know Where I'm Going. Now I have three more films that I'm just going to love and treasure moving forward. I couldn't ask for a better reason to do this podcast than to kind of be exposed uh, to films like that. So uh, again, can't thank you enough for making those recommendations or picking those films, sir. They, they were a, a delight for me to experience. And same for me, like that, uh, the... It is a is a definitely a new kind of movie experience. Uh, just the way that they lined up all of their stylistic traits uh, was something that I had never. Well, I guess I had seen it technically, <laughs> narcissist. But I guess maybe I was just drunk or passed out or something. But uh, being more mindful this time, I guess uh, it was really, really grateful to uh, to to focus down and, and watch and take some of that stuff in because. It was across the board. Excellent. Uh, if, 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 if I can get one person on, on board, I feel like my job's done here. <laughs> yeah, we just do this podcast for you and I. I mean, if other people It's fine. Listen, this is fine. really just an excuse for us to kind of geek out. So this is wonderful. And I think on that note, uh, it has been a delightful time catching up with you. I know that for myself, being so absorbed in new job stuff, it's sort of easy to get drawn out of this but it's fun to come back and uh yeah i hope everyone is staying well and indoors and hopefully getting vaccines when they when they can we hope to uh catch you next time uh next month sometime. yeah please everyone stay safe uh stay happy better times are coming uh and uh when you need to there is i think no better bomb or salve than to kind of sit back and just kind of watch something that that speaks to you no matter what that thing is so uh we will keep doing that as well and we'll see you next time all right have a good night chris you too sir bye